and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, uh, good afternoon, good morning to those uh, around the phone. Um, I think brothers are on the phone. I didn't hear any sisters around the phone, but I, I do appreciate this opportunity to be with you, to be with in the fellowship, um, to be with, in some senses, my first family because I was able to reconnect. I was able to find love in this family that I had been looking for all my life. Um, and so I'm just going to share for about, I don't know if it'll take me 20 minutes, but I'm going to share a little bit about, you know, how I came to the program. Uh, but more importantly, um, as was reminded to us, you know, what's, what's happened um, since joining the program. So my name is Rukshan Fernando. I'm powerless over lust. And my sobriety date is May 31st, 2002. So I, um, for Ever since I can remember, I think the first L- lust temptation I had was when I was four years old um, that I can, you know, remember. And I remember I was in nursery school and I had a serious crush on my nursery school teacher and I noticed um, the form of her body. And um, there was something that happened to me. There was a chemical reaction. There was a, there was a magic um, that happened to me that uh, caused, that made me think that you know, um, getting into my head, uh, objectifying people was a way for me to cope with pain, with heartache, with rejection, with fear. Um, so even from that age of four, that tender age of four, um, I started to hardwire myself to use the narcotic of lust in my life. And I did this, you know, until I was about 18. And then at 18, um, and I'd been teased by other boys at my school regularly because I was one of the few boys um, in my school that hadn't masturbated yet. And I, was, I still remember it was like May, sometime in May of, um, of my senior year in high school, May 1994, um, that I acted out for the first time. And um, because I'm an addict, um, it wasn't something that I gradually... Uh, jumped into. It was something that I jumped head first into. And I went from acting out for the first time to acting out several times a day. Um, And my addiction became progressively worse where I started to uh, rent pornographic films uh, from local video stores. Um, And then when I, that later on that year, I came to the United States and, you know, things continue to get worse and worse and worse in terms of the, the films or just watching um, cable television shows that allowed me to act out my disease. And then later on in the ni- late 1990s, this thing called the internet, uh, you know, that, that was kind of taking off and um, that was the next level for me um, where I would stay up till very, very, very late at night um, acting out. 
And um, and then uh, this was sometime my junior year. I met um, you know a girl that I eventually ended up marrying. Um, and one day when I was at her parents' house, her dad asked me. He and I were talking about me buying a car. And so um, he asked. He told me, "Well, if you want to do some research, you can use my computer to do my research on buying a car." And that began a cycle of actually using his computer, my father-in-law's computer, to act out on. And uh, so whenever I would go to their house, because of the access to the internet, because I didn't have a computer of my own, um, I used his computer. Now, in my higher power's grace, <laughs> but I, was also, I would also stay in my own stupidity, and I'm grateful for my stupidity, I knew nothing about um, the fact that you can track where you go on the internet through a history. And um, about a year later, I got an, a letter from my father-in-law uh, expressing grave concern because he had checked into the sites that I'd gone to and he warned me um, about the dangers of pornography. And... Uh, you know, I felt incredible shame, incredible remorse. And like it says in the white book, um, and I actually didn't follow the white book's uh, advice, I sort of called up my, not sort of, I called up my um, girlfriend at the time and just sort of disclosed and disclosed everything. Um, and then disclosed to my father-in-law and who, who then it became sort of a family affair. So my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were sort of aware of it, my mother-in-law. And that, that was a, began a process of deep introspection, deep questioning, but I really didn't find recovery. Um, and while things got better um, in terms of my relationships with my future in-laws, because we got married a couple months later, um, I still continued to act out. Um, and, uh, it got so bad, um, that, um, you know, at the, at the height of my acting out, uh, using the internet, um, I re still remember my wife, you know, uh, coming home and, um, going into our closet, our, our joint, you know, clothes closet and finding a pornographic, um, uh, VHS tape hidden in my clothes. And I remember her crying and moaning on the floor because she just didn't know if she could continue on in the marriage. So, and I really believe this was my higher power involved. I immediately began to uh, look up 12-step programs. I had never really heard about 12-step programs, but I thought that would be uh, the next step. And our first meeting, my wife and I's first meeting actually was a recovering couples anonymous meeting, which was through SA and SNN in Crystal City in Northern Virginia. And then the next uh, Wednesday, I went to my first SA meeting in May 2001 um, in Crystal City. And it took me about a year of, of getting sober, um, sort of technically sober, but not really less sober. Um, later on that year, in 2002, after getting physically sober, my sponsor visited uh, some other SA uh, fellows in Dayton, Ohio, who were kind of uh, rethinking about um, 
or not rethinking, but really being proactive about working the steps. And he actually uh, went to their three-day step working retreat where he would work all 12 steps or all nine steps rather in about three or four days. <clears throat> and, um, you know, he took about a week and a week and a half to make his indirect and uh, direct amends. And he came back a really changed person. And he started sharing his story of this process of really working the steps with with urgency as opposed to sort of saying when I'm going to get to it. And at the time I was previously working with a sponsor who was, you know, helping me through the steps, but um, because of my own unwillingness, I wasn't really moving. I was kind of, you know, going slowly, uh, taking the lighter path. So when I heard about his transformation and the things that were occurring in his life, the amends that were happening, the, the reconciliations that was happening between him and his family members, where there was a lot of pain and a lot of distrust, um, I actually asked him to sponsor me. And that led me to a process of working the steps with significant intensity in the mid part of 2002 to 2003 for the next four months. And really, that is all I did. I would, I would come home. I would finish work. We didn't have kids at the time. And then I would meet a group of guys at various libraries. And that's all we did for hours. We would work the steps. We would give away steps to each other. Um, and that process continued. And my wife was pregnant with our first time, child at the time. And actually, I do not remember most of her pregnancy because the only thing I did was work and work the steps. Um, so that process of intensive working the steps of giving away, uh, you know, listing my resentments of sharing my defects of making those amends, I think it says in the white book about removing the big boulders in the road. And that's really what happened for me. It removed some major boulders in the road. And so that kind of leads me to what's, what's kept me sober, um, and in that process of, of working the steps and, you know, uh, in joining with these smaller group of fellows in SA um, who were serious about working the steps, I started doing something called the daily renewal with my sponsor. And many of you I know know that process of the daily sobriety renewal. And so we did it. We started about 16 years ago, and we have continued that daily sobriety renewal every day for the last 16 years. And really, it's what's kept me sober. Um, it's the daily sharing of noise and disturbance, lust temptations, sharing about my quiet time and renewal work and um, sobri- uh, step work. Um, and um, being able to share off of my top plate every single day that I know every day for about 15 minutes, I am going to be accountable to somebody has been a significant reason why I have been able to stay sober. It's because of the constant interaction with another fellow in this fellowship. Um, and then the other, th- the, some of the other things that I've, that I've realized that have kept me sober is um, careful, careful review of other things that are going on in my life that are uh, sort of addictive-like behaviors that were being covered up or that were unseen to me because of lust or because of acting out. And so things like relationship to power, but more than that, also relationship to food and media began to change. Um, So things like sugar, 
um, I started to give up sugar because I knew that sugar was doing something to me that when I would intake things with sugar in them or high contents of sugar in them, um, I became a different person. So about four or five years ago, I gave up all soda and, and uh, you know, sweets. Um, things ba- basically taking care of myself, like things like drinking water. Um, I have been somebody that has been re- really reluctant and unwilling to be uh, to drink water. I would much prefer to drink things like Coke or juice or, you know, other types of substances, but I would, I, I rebelled against taking care of my body. And now, um, because of the program, because of that daily sobriety renewal of keeping myself accountable, I'm grateful to say that I drink 70 ounces of water a day and I feel like a different person because I'm putting and placing things into my body that make me feel better and make me feel good um, about who I am. And, 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 and it allows me to see my higher power working through me. And then finally, sleep. Um, I was a person that was a, you know, stayed up till late at night acting out till two or three in the morning. And even after I got sober, I would still stay up at night. And even though I wasn't you know, looking at anything or watching any pornography, I was still engaged in that rebellion, that, that resentment of going to bed on time or going to bed in a reasonable way. Um, and now um, I'm grateful to say that I'm going to bed between 10 and 10.30 every night and I'm getting seven hours of sleep, seven to eight hours of sleep. And I, it's so much so that if I get, a, you know, you know, by chance, if I'm up till late at night because my schedule is off or because we have people over visiting in, at the house, um, I feel a change in who I am. Um, I tend to be a little bit more impatient, more resentful and whatnot. And then um, the other tool that has really helped me is this 10th step and taking a daily or even a prompt on the spot inventory of what is going on with me vis-a-vis what's going on with me versus a person at a meeting or at work or in my family member or at my ch- my, one of my children um, that's causing me to get triggered. Um, the 10th step has allowed me to instead of hit the accelerate, accelerator button and like plow through traffic, it allows me to take my foot off the accelerator, hit brake, and actually see what is going on on the highway to see how, what my part in it is and to see what that person's part in it is. And so sometimes it involves me breaking away uh, in the middle of a day, right, maybe over lunch, maybe five to ten minutes, and writing out maybe a paragraph of what's going on in me. What are some of the feelings? What are some of the, the lies that are going on in me? What are some of the, the issues that are going on? Am I engaged in projection? Am I engaged in mirroring? Am I engaged in unrealistic expectations? Things like that that are, I think, so important tools that allow me to get right-sized with myself, with, with my higher power, but also with the person or the, the category of persons that are triggering me. Um, and this was, this, this was even sort of relevant yesterday um, when I was playing basketball with some guys, and this guy fouled me really, really hard. And I wanted to switch into that defensive, angry, you know, um, fight first little boy, you know. Um, And I was able to sort of ask for a sub, get off the court, 
collect my feelings, collect my understanding of what was going on, and then I was able to look that guy in the eye and play with him and engage him as opposed to resenting him. Um, now, I would say that I'm a work in progress, and you know, often my life is involved in you know, two steps forward, one step uh, two steps back, one step forward. Um, and I have a long way to go and, uh, I have to keep coming back to meetings and I have to keep learning the same lessons over and over again. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm an addict, but I think that, um, if, if not for the program, if not for the fellowship, of the program, if not for the daily sobriety renewal, if not for my sponsor, if not for um, things that we have done before in, in, in other fellowships that I've been involved in, other groups that I've been involved with, um, like engaging with men or something called accountability circles, you know, if not for all these tools that my higher power has given me, um, I would still be, you know, in 2001, like in 2001, I'd be still on a computer, probably alone, probably divorced, probably without any friends acting out to images that are not going to make me whole. And um, I'd like to close my time with a passage that's kind of in uh, the big book. And it says that you will find the fellowship that you crave. And one of the things that I have had with several people um, here in SA, especially my sponsor, and actually my sponsor and I sponsor each other now, but we have been able to find the fellowship, the brotherhood that I was looking for all my life, that I didn't find in my dad, that maybe I didn't find in some of my cousins, that I didn't find in my schoolmates, but I've been able to find it here in this fellowship, the brotherhood and sisterhood that I've been craving, that I was replacing, that I thought lust would be able to replace, but it didn't. And love was, is able to daily, through this slow process of recovery, because it's slow sometimes, Lust has been killed by love. And I'm grateful to experience that promise that Roy talks about in the White Book. So thanks again for this opportunity, and thank you for listening. And um, that's all from me for right now. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.